Welcome to the Maris Review. Today is special because we are doing our first coffee table book on the Maris Review. It's the Encyclopedia of New York by the editors of New York Magazine. And so I have the wrangler of all of those editors here with me today. And it's such a pleasure to be talking to Christopher Bonanos. He's the city editor at New York Magazine where he covers art and culture and urban affairs. And he's also the author of Instant, the story of Polaroid and Flash, the making of Ouija the Famous. Hi, Chris. Hi there. I don't know exactly when this episode will air, but today was the day that Curbed released this really devastating package of 500 New York City businesses that have closed since the pandemic which of course doesn't mean that New York City is dying or is dead, but tell me about the history of people <laughs> declaring that New York City is dead. Um, there is a long and illustrious history of people mistakenly declaring New York dead. I mean, the obvious one that we all know about is the 1970s and 80s when the crime wave was spiking and the infrastructure was decaying and uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of people left. Um, the real dynamic at work there was more complicated. It was really about job loss. It was not about, you know, business closures of this kind, which right. this is an acute rent crisis, and that's yes. somewhat different. Mm -hmm. um, there it was fundamental. You know, New York in the, in the 19th and first half of the 20th century was a factory town. That's what yeah. cities were. They were places to have a lot of middle-class people in one place to run factories where stuff was mostly made, not exactly necessarily by hand, but pretty close. And New York, you know, we forget, but all those loft buildings downtown, thousands yeah. and thousands of them, um, which are now very, very nice places to live, were, were factories. Um, all those buildings in Soho were, uh, um, you know, they have big arched windows for a reason to let in light for the cutting tables and for the uh, people operating machinery. And those buildings were full of underwear factories and paper box factories and making small machine parts and ladders and, you know, anything imaginable. In the, really in the 60s, you could say, and for the next 20 years, that um, all that business drained away to places in the South and in the West and eventually overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, New York lost a million people in the 1970s. Unthinkable now. All of that, you know, changed the character of the city. And that was really when New York felt like it was over because fundamentally it's reason for being this clustering of, right. of humanity ended. Um, did it end? It did not. We figured out a new way out of this. We invented our way out of it. And in fact, fundamentally, this book is about invention. It's a book about New York as the creative center of of its time and its place and in our extremely not humble opinion, the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the, in, in the intro to the book, you call it the confluence of creativity. Like what mm -hmm. made New York City the right city at the right moment to become this center? It's a good question. And there are a lot of different forces, but you know, um, it, it, at some point it became a critical mass of both immigration and internal immigration, for lack of a better term, you know, people coming from Ohio or Texas or whatever to be New Yorkers. Um, and, you know, that kind of thing is in its way self-fulfilling because when you get people coming to a place to shoot their shot, who do you get? 
you get the most entrepreneurial people, you get the most ambitious people, you get the ones who really want it. Because it's not so easy to live here. We all know that. <laughs> the apartments are too small and it costs too much and it's dirty and it's uh, anyway, you know, I don't have to explain to you. Um, and there are, you know, there are impediments to living here. So if you're going to come here, you're going to come here because you want it anyway. Mm-hmm. And that suggests a certain um, cast of mind that perhaps leads to success. <laughs> and when you get enough of that critical mass here, it is self uh, sustaining because, for example, if you're going to come here to shoot your shot as an entrepreneur, say with an invention or something, you know, well, Wall Street is here with people who wanted to make money, so they came here, right? So suddenly you have the financing and the PR agencies are here, so you can get your idea out into the world, and the mm-hmm. ad agencies are here, so they can get their idea out into the world that way. And then who does the stories on you? The press and all the magazines are here, and all <laughs> the biggest newspapers are here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and the TV networks and everybody else. So, you know, the, the even if something is not invented at its very, very germination in New York, um, the, the machinery that slings it out into the world is here. And then on top of it all, it's simply the biggest city. And so what is useful about that is that, you know, if you have some uh, uh, invention that is not a physical object, but is like an idea, you know, there's an entry in here for neoconservatism, for example. Yes. Um, invented in the city college cafeteria. A bunch of guys sitting around and arguing about politics. Um, you know, if you, if you um, wanted to get, promulgate your, your political idea on the right or on the left, and you held a little rally, well, if you did it in, you know, um, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, you'd get six people there. If you do it in New York, you might get 500. Right. And there might be a TV camera from NBC, and there might be a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, and suddenly your thing is going to take off. Right. So self-fulfilling. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the decision to base the entire coffee table book around innovations. Mm-hmm. And how did you determine what topics would be included and, and what would be left on the cutting room floor of New York City history forever and ever. Let me tell you, there were there were lots of discussions and spreadsheets and Slack conversations and <laughs> um, and uh, and and uh, charts and graphs and all of it. Um, we decided to focus on innovation because you have to. You, you, it's too big a subject to do um, as a as a pure book unless you're going to do a true encyclopedia. And right. to be fair, that book already exists: the Kenneth Jackson Encyclopedia of New York City, mm-hmm. which we more than respect, respect and esteem. This is a different kind of book. This is a, a, a playful encyclopedia, if you will, you know, one that entertains in addition to just being a, a comprehensive reference the way that one is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one thing we realized was that with the sprawl of this subject, you had to have some kind of focusing filter. And we had put on our sort of magazine thematic thinking caps, you know, mm-hmm. and we realized that, you know, innovation and invention is a defining characteristic, if not the defining characteristic of New York in the way that I talked about a few minutes ago, but also that it allowed us to cover people without covering them as people. Right. As strange as that seems. For example, there is no entry in this book for Robert Moses, one of the 10 most influential people in the history of New York City. In the 20th century, probably the most influential person Mm -hmm. in the history of New York City. Um, But there is an entry for the elevated highway, which was his invention. There, he pops up in 20 other entries talking about all sorts of things. Um, uh, The, um, you know, 
And through that, we discovered that you could get a nice sweep through history uh, from a time standpoint and from a location standpoint. And inherently, it ends up being about other things too. You know, right. if you're talking about invention, you're talking about immigration. If you're talking about invention, you're talking about intellectual uh, ferment, as I said earlier. Um, inventions are not just things like um, the safety pin, which right. is in here, by the yes. way. <laughs> Or the English muffin, so surprising. <laughs> There's so much food in this book and it's so much fun <laughs> to read the food entries. Um, you know, uh, English muffin is right next to egg cream. I just <laughs> that seems a little more less shocking to me, the egg cream. It's true. Well, the English muffin you would think is English maybe. Yeah. Um, but uh, the funny thing is that the inventor was, um, uh, was oh, I forget his, so it was Samuel Thomas, as in Thomas's English muffins. Oh. <laughs> There's a building in Chelsea where he had his bakery. It's a co-op now. It's a little like brownstone building. Um, and apparently they were digging in the yard when they were renovating, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And they found the arch of a brick oven in the cellar. And they renamed the building the Muffin House. <laughs> the Muffin House. You can buy a co-op in the Muffin House if you have a couple million dollars to throw around. I would. <laughs> you know what you have for breakfast when you live there. <laughs> That's amazing. And so, the, so there were the literal inventions, and then mm -hmm. there were things like genres of music. Mm-hmm. That's right. Oh, that, of course, the biggest entry in the book, I think, by length, and certainly one of the biggest in terms of its sweep, is hip hop. Um, which is, you know, not only an amazing New York phenomenon, but it's also, you know, at, 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 at its heart, it's a, it's a trillion dollar global yes. phenomenon and, you know, uh, created an entire universe and it started in a rec room on Cedric Avenue in the Bronx. Yeah. Um, and really that's a, that's a sort of tour de force piece of writing by Craig Jenkins, who is our pop critic and is a freaking genius and mm -hmm. I, I was so pleased I, I asked him to write it and I was like yeah can you do all of hip-hop in 1500 words <laughs> give, give, give that a try and he was like oh sure why not and a few weeks later I got this thing that was just a big thoughtful essay it touched it touches on Robert Moses and the creation of the projects mm -hmm. uh, as a as an origin point for the hip-hop movement which you know I would not have myself have thought to say Robert Moses hip-hop pioneer, but he sort of makes the case that it starts there with his frank racism and the displacement of black New York into, you know, from, from neighborhoods into, into uh, specifically into housing projects, you know, created its own culture and that culture has become a um, world. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that seems like such a tough thing to grapple with as well, because New York City, of course, is a city that exists on stolen land and where mm -hmm. slavery took place for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that has consequences. It does, it does. Um, and it's all over this book too. We do talk about it at some point. And, and that's, it's, it, it's so funny to say that Robert Moses was a force of good in the music industry. Like, yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't something he planned. It, he it, certainly it, didn't know, plan to. Department of Unintended Consequences, but in a good way. <laughs> and tell me, tell me what innovations 
you when you this book was just a kernel of an idea what were mm -hmm. the ones that were like on, on your shorthand list well there are certain things that were obvious certainly i mean hip-hop was a big one baseball right. was a big one right. which um you know in the 19th century the version of the sport that we now know as baseball was um it was referred to as the new york game yeah. one of the first matches was held at what is now 34th and Lexington. There, there, are, um, there were certain things that are sort of obvious, you know, the egg cream I mentioned right. earlier, you know, right. certainly everybody's going to look for the egg cream in this uh -huh. stick ball, right? Mm -hmm. And the Spalding, there's a Spalding C stick ball. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and there are, there are a lot of things in the history of, uh, you know, um, media and advertising, you know, uh, the television network, yeah, that kind of thing, and thus, and thus the TV commercial, <laughs> and the game show, uh, and the game show, and the sitcom, and the cooking show. Um, uh, there was one I knew I wanted to write, which was the tabloid, oh, <laughs> the yeah. tabloid okay. newspaper. Yes, there was an experimental tabloid here in 1900 for one issue. Um, the New York World decided to do something called the newspaper of the future. For uh, I think it was January 1st either 1900 or 1901. And instead of being the big broadsheet, they put out one that was half size and, you know, that you read and had more pictures. And, uh, and then the guy who edited that went off to London and started the uh, London Daily Mirror. Come 1919, after the war, um, the family that owned the Chicago Tribune, uh, Joseph Medill Patterson, was back from the war and started a photo-driven paper, again in tabloid format, for New York, uh, called the New York Daily News, you may have seen it. <laughs> um, and it, uh, it absolutely changed newspapering in tone, in approach, in, in physical form. Mm -hmm. the, the New Yorkiest thing about the tabloid really is that um, it was in part created in that format because a broadsheet paper, you have to put your arms all the way absolutely. out to read it, you know, it's huge. And the tabloid is more containable and you can read it on the subway. Absolutely. Yeah. I never learned mm -hmm. how to fold my newspaper properly. Um, the, the old New York Times well, used to work a lot better when they didn't have so many jumps, when there were lots of short one column articles. It doesn't really work anymore because you have yeah. to keep turning back and forth. Back and, forth. Mm -hmm. and so what were some of the ideas that ended up not making the list? Well, there were there were a number of things we wanted to claim. Let's see if I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. There were there were a number of things we wanted to claim that turned out on deeper research. We just couldn't make a case for them having been invented here. Like there there are certain things you identify very much with New York City. The black and white cookie that was one. Oh, interesting. <laughs> we dug into the history of the black and white cookie, and it was somewhere upstate. You just mm. as much as we try to claim it for mm -hmm. ours, and we may have made it a New York icon, but it just it wasn't, um, it wasn't created here. Mind you, there are a couple of things that weren't created here that we included in the book because they have been so thoroughly changed by New York. Right, right. We adopted, pizza. like pizza, for example. Right, exactly. Pizza, we know, pizza's from Naples. <laughs> we, we accept that. <laughs> um, but come on, a New York pizza is a very different thing. Um, and uh, so we, make, we, we explain how it evolved here. I found the cutest clip. It's from the New York Times in, I think, 1943. And it's a story. It's a food story. And it's about this 
curious Italian dish that is available at a restaurant in Hell's Kitchen. And it's called pizza. And they, they include a, a pronunciation guide, pizza. Uh, <laughs> and it, it talks about how they're made with tomato and cheese on top and cooked very quickly in an oven and they're very thin. And then it's, you know, it's sliced up. And, and there's a, a line at the end that made me laugh out loud when they were explaining this in very sort of sober New York Timesy mm -hmm. terms. And then at the end it says, um, special flat cardboard boxes are provided by the restaurant in order that they may be, um, they may be obtained to go. <laughs> That's Delightful. innovation right there. Right, exactly. You know, that we have a separate entry also for the dollar slice, which can be pinned to one particular New York joint. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, there are, there are lots of things like that that sort of fell off the list because we just right. couldn't hang on to them as much as we wanted to. But, you know, bagels and pizza come on well, of course bagels belong bagels here. And pizza. yes they're from poland i don't know uh, you know right. but they're ours mm -hmm. schmear um <laughs> cream cheese has its own entry it's true yes i found a guy in um santa monica california the world's great cream cheese scholar what a thing and he's a rabbi in santa monica california and he knows more about the history of cream cheese than anybody else on earth and we had a very very pleasant <laughs> email exchange <laughs> what did what did you learn oh well i i had assumed going in it would probably end up in philadelphia right sure nope uh there was a there was a dairy upstate cheshire new york i think i'd have to look it up um, but they got together with um, a New Yorker to be the distributor and, and package it and sell it downstate. Um, and you know his name because it was Breakstone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, they, the Philadelphia name is a little, it's a little weird and hard to figure out why they put that name on it eventually. Uh, but it seems to be that Philadelphia had a reputation for good dairy products, like purity and dairy or something like that. So they, uh, they glommed the name on. Amazing. And then of course, throughout the book interspersed because, because you're a magazine editor probably. And because, um, this was a product of a magazine, there are tons of what I would call sidebars. They're mostly on the top. Um, yes, there's a little rail on the top of each page with, we, you know, we called them the sidebars. I think book people call them other things. <laughs> I'm not sure. Wow. That, that one, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but they, the idea of them is, is to um, give contemporary context to a lot of the historical entries. That is, for example, there's an essay about the history of abstract expressionism, which is by Jerry Saltz, the yep. wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, one of a kind art critic of New York mm -hmm. Magazine. And so in the sidebar rail, we, we had him choose five, uh, you know, world-class examples of Abex painting that you can go see in New York. The idea is more or less to get you to, um, once you're done spending time with the book, to get you out of your chair and into the city, you know, yeah. that it functions a little bit as guidebook in addition mm -hmm. to encyclopedia. Um, some of them are cultural like that, but like there's an entrance, an entry for Q-tips, for example. Right. I know. Um, and, <laughs> and oh, you have an ear thing? No, I don't. Ha I, I I like their original use. I <laughs> oh yeah, right. Uh, anyway, an entry for Q-tips, and we have a little sidebar where one of our writers interviewed an uh, otolaryngologist, 
and said, how, how should you clean your ears if you're not going to stick a Q-tip in your ear? <laughs> News you can use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there were things like that made me nostalgic that maybe that weren't supposed to. I think Fran Tirado mentioned Mimi's Diner and like yeah. a bunch of other just even yeah, just Tina Brown on power lunches. Mm -hmm. Not, not many. Who else, who else would you ask? Perfect person. I mean, um, I you get the perfect people. You have like David Byrne on Essential New Wave. But there's that little slice that doesn't exist right now. Yeah, it's and, true. And then you have uh, under Q, of course, mm -hmm. you have quarantine, which isn't you, just about you, today. I'll tell you a funny story about that. Um, we finished the first version of this book, the sort of you know first roughed out layout around the end of March. And wow. you know, I couldn't, by that time, I could barely see it for what it was. I was so deep in the material. And I, I sent it to the boss to read and he said, this is great, but you know what's missing is the, the, mm. the, the, is the shutdown, the, the world we're living in now. And, uh, you know, there were references to it here and there in the introduction right. and so forth. But he said, really, you know, you, it should be more of a presence because this is a giant world changing moment for New York City. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it got threaded into the introduction a little more beefily, but also only editors and writers will understand this as quite a funny moment as it is. When you're making an encyclopedia, certain letters come up short. Of There's not a lot of, of Zs. Course. Yes. There's not a lot of X's and there's not so a lot of had Q's. A Q. And I swear this is true. We had at the end of the Q chapter, a nearly blank page. Mm -hmm. It was, we hadn't filled up the second page of Q's. So there was three quarters of the page with nothing on it. And I was thinking about how to get COVID into the book and a little Q-shaped light bulb went on over my head. <laughs> so much better than the Q-shaped been going on over people's heads in this country. Uh, so, we're very um, so we, so we, um, and it turns out, although the quarantine was not invented in New York, um, it has had multiple lives here. You know, there yeah. used to be an island in the harbor when ships came in where they were briefly quarantined mm -hmm. to check people out. Then there were at Ellis Island, there were rooms where people were quarantined for weeks, months sometimes sent back, more often treated there in the hospital. Um, needless to say, the 1918 flu pandemic yep. epidemic played out a lot here. And there's, I mean, we've all read a hundred news stories this year about the way that uh, went down, <sighs> yes. for better and for worse. That, and then suddenly we find ourselves in this one. Absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's, I can, it's funny to look through the book and find an entry by alphabet and realize like, oh, it says for basketball, see hoops. Probably <laughs> <laughs> they needed no, some H's. <laughs> that, that, that one happens to have fallen there because we wanted it there. We wanted to differentiate between basketball, which is the sport famously invented in Springfield, Massachusetts and the street game, which is all ours. And we were like, the streets game is, the street game is different. You know, it's not the professionalized game. It's not even the college game. It's something else. And that's all ours. So we put it under hoops. <laughs> Amazing. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about finding 
or not finding, but I guess, tell me about um, working with contributors. So having some of the experts in, in their fields. Yeah, the, the, um, the great pleasure of doing this when you work on a magazine that is, you know, one of the secrets of New York Magazine is that although it is, it is nominally about a city, it is kind of a general interest magazine because mm -hmm. it, it's not restricted to just culture or just politics or just uh, uh, food or, you know, any of the multiple subjects we cover. It is, um, it is quite the generalist within our lens of things that come through or affect New York City. And uh, so we have a rather large battalion of contributors to draw from. And, you know, my job on this was often just to uh, catch people who are already really busy and writing flat out all the time mm -hmm. to do a little more. Heaven knows there's, um, you know, <laughs> it was an uphill battle here and there, but by and large, people did want to be a part of it. That mm -hmm. was pleasing. And also just when you ask these like extremely, extremely talented people to come through and they do, my gosh, it's really, you know, it's the best. You ask Jerry for a piece of art writing <sighs> and you get it in and you're like, nobody else could have written this, you know? Right. Um, you ask, and, and we have so many people that I can go to, you know, as I said, Craig on hip hop, my gosh, Catherine Van Arendonk, our, our, one of our TV critics, wrote about the history of the sitcom. Yep. She also did the other, some of the other TV ones we were talking about earlier. It's just great. Um, our food writers, you know, they, they came through in all sorts of ways. Nikita Richardson, who was a longtime contributor to Grub Street, did a whole bunch of food stuff that's just delightful. Um, and then uh, Justin Davidson, our architecture critic, uh, writes about the built environment more generally and, you know, for things like Oh, uh, the, the, the skyline, which right. we had him write about because we didn't invent the skyscraper, but we sure invented that thing that is the spiky New York skyline. We all know that. And then a lot of the interstitial ones um, uh, came from me. <laughs> which is, um, it, there's a note at the end of the contributors list, which is really actually just astounding. <laughs> Which is, it says that uh, if if the essay wasn't mentioned amongst the yeah, contributors, wrote <laughs> you wrote you wrote every every other one, which is it's it's it's, it's about that yeah um, it's uh, it was a lot they did dedicate <laughs> the time for it so it you know what does not kill us makes us stronger mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and also I had a blast I'm sort of the house history person whenever right. we need some New York history thing written anyway so a lot of this stuff kind of fell into my wheelhouse like I had I had once before written about um, oh what was it like uh, I had once before written about the history of the bodega um, so I was able to sort of repurpose that. A few bits and pieces of this book are things that had been published in the magazine before. Mm -hmm. Not many, but, but a few. And that was one of them, for example. Um, I once researched for a story that didn't run, who invented alternate side of the street parking. Wow. <laughs> so, I was, so I was able to pull all that up again and, um, and, uh, and you know, reuse it. <laughs> Nothing goes to waste. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of your wheelhouse, tell me about the art in this book, it's, it's so fun. Well, that um, I can crow about that because it wasn't me. 
um, our photo department is world-class and terrifying in their scope and ability to find <laughs> stuff. I offered a few recommendations here and there that I'm proud of having like cleared their bar, but mostly it was just them. You tell them, let's, let's, let's go find a, a, a you know, you, you tell them there's an entry about loft living. We embedded the loft, right? right. That's a place to live. And I was talking about this earlier, we're converting an old factory space into an art studio and then into a very expensive apartment after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they came up with this amazing picture of Chuck Close painting in his loft on uh, Green Street in 1970, you know. Um, you ask them to, uh, to come up with a, an image for, you know, uh, oh, an entry like uh, uh, the Lindy Hop. And there's mm. this amazing picture that ran in Life magazine in 1947. You know, um, it's, uh, it's so satisfying. And we had a little bit of stuff that was shot for the magazine over right. the years too, right. that, we could, that we could draw upon from our own people. There's a guy named Bobby Doherty, who was our staff photographer for several years, still shoots for us. Um, and he, he, like we needed an entry for the Oreo, for example, which was invented in New York. And it, as it happened, he shot a picture of some Oreos. That's just delightful. It is delightful. Uh, uh, it ran in the magazine, I don't know, five years ago, something like that. And we had it on, on tap. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Speaking of on mm-hmm. tap, um, I want to share that I learned. <laughs> My <laughs> trivia from this is that TGI Fridays started as a singles bar. Oh, I'm so glad you bring that up. I'm so glad you bring it up because it is the world's first singles bar, depending on how you define. I mean, every bar is a singles bar sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But but in particular, uh, TGI Fridays was created in the in the mid '60s, 1965, I think it was, uh, on First Avenue around 63rd Street, and it was. It was aimed at young single professionals in the neighborhood and particularly that neighborhood at the time had a lot of young single women. The idea was to make a bar that they could go to um, that looked modern rather than old. You know, it was brightly lit rather than dark. And it was a place where you have to understand that the average sort of dark smoky corner tavern then was not hospitable to women. You could perhaps come in as a couple perhaps, and sit Mm -hmm. in the back corner somewhere, especially like in a college neighborhood or something. But a lot of saloons didn't want women at all. And if you showed up, this is unthinkable now, if you show up as a single woman at a hotel bar in New York in that era, Mm -hmm. you would perhaps be escorted out because they Mm -hmm. thought you were a prostitute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As many people know, McSorley's in the East Village did not admit women at all until a lawsuit was threatened in 1970. 1970! (laughs) And if you go in there still, it's obvious that there's only supposed to be one bathroom. There are two now, but one of them is like this extra <laughs> box that was sort of grafted into the room, you know, and it's because they didn't have di- they didn't have more than one bathroom for 150 okay. years. Um, uh, anyway, Fridays was meant to be modern. Um, and, you know, it was where secretaries and flight attendants could go and feel comfortable, uh, you know, single working young women Mm-hmm. Um, could go and feel comfortable and relax and maybe meet a guy. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, all the elements of TDI Fridays were already there. You know, the striped shirts and the, the, <laughs> the uh, they, they um, you know, potted plants and it, look, it looked playful rather than dark. <laughs> <laughs> right. And there were uh, rip-offs right away all over town. 
I remember going to the one on Fifth Avenue in Rockefeller Center when I worked at Simon and Schuster <laughs> and feeling like you got out of New Jersey, killer. <laughs> like, what are you doing in that bar? <laughs> I had exactly the same experience. Um, New York Magazine used to be on 49th Street, a block away from Rockefeller Center. We went, it was, it was me and three or four fact checkers. This is when I was young at the magazine. I started in the copy department there. Uh, and one afternoon we were, on some Friday we were, some Friday, right? We exactly. were going to go out for a drink and somebody said, oh, what the heck? Let's go to Friday's. It might be cheap. Uh, and we went there and we were 20 minutes in and collectively sort of said, what on earth? Why did we come here? <laughs> it's funny that this New York invention has become the least New York-y bar imaginable. Absolutely. It's symbolic yeah. of the suburbs in a way that few other restaurants. I know. I know. And the, the, the original owner, the guy who founded it, he's still around. He's in his 80s. Hmm. He sold it many years ago. Um, and he founded a second chain, which was Smith and Walensky. Wow. The steakhouses. And he has since sold that except for the flagship location on, um, on uh, uh, Lexington Avenue in the 50s, you know, the original, yeah. which apparently he still owns and runs. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah, and that's like now every major city has a Smith and Walensky. Yeah, I know. He's he's done very well for himself. It <laughs> seems clear. I mean, you hit you know you hit that jackpot twice. That's how amazing. Does that happen, right? You know, you start a thing like that and sell it for heaven knows how much money, and then you start something else and you do it again. It's, it's the way to go. <laughs> Please, um, this has been so fun, Chris. Tell me, tell me. Um, a couple of titles that you'd like to recommend uh, sure. for readers. Um, I will tell you about two things I am reading right now and like a lot, and one that's queued up for next. The next one is easy. It's Hidden Valley Road by Bob Coker, um, which, I mean, everybody in America knows what a good book this is mm -hmm. now, courtesy of Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, Bob is also a friend, so uh, we worked together at the magazine for right. more than a decade. and. His first book was staggeringly good, mm -hmm. Lost Girls. Uh, so I'm psyched for this one. And it's, yeah. as I said, it's up next. Um, the two things I am reading right now are going to be things that I doubt have ever been brought up on your program before, but why not? Perfect. One is a book by Eddie Portnoy, who is a, a Yiddish language scholar. He works with the Evo Institute, and I think he teaches at Rutgers, if I have that right. Um, and it, it came out about two, three years ago, I think. It's called Bad Rabbi. Okay. And it is anecdotes and stories from the turn of the century Yiddish press. Oh, wow. He just went through a million old issues of the forward and uh, some of the papers not in the US, you know, in, in Poland and in uh, and the other New York Jewish papers as well. And he just found outrageous stories of murders, of frauds, of of a uh, 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 a 600 pound wrestler who was a sort of mild minor celebrity at the time. <laughs> sure. Um, everyone is insanely entertaining. And, you know, he's a, Eddie Portnoy is a scholar. And as you know, scholars, um, academics have, let's say a wide range of ability to entertain as they write. Um, yeah. How's that for a polite way of putting it, right? There you go. This guy, 
absolutely knows how to entertain. Okay, that's great. It's just that's delicious. That's one. Fun. And the other is, and again, this is just so random, I realize, but as a teenager, I read all the Rex Stout Nero Wolf mysteries and yeah. loved them. And I had not looked at one in three decades, four, uh, maybe closer to four. I don't know. And this weekend, I picked up one again for the first time in, oh, how lovely. in I can't tell you how many years. I said, oh, let's give this a shot in quarantine. I was literally, I was next door to a bookshop and I had an hour to kill while I was waiting for something. And so I bought it and went to the pizzeria next door and bought a slice and sat down and I got sucked in again. Um, this it. one's called The Second Confession, but honestly, I, I, I now want to go back and read all hundred of them or however many there are. The nicest thing too is that, you know, we're all sort of rotted out in the brain from quarantine mm -hmm. and from Twitter and from too much premium TV. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm glad you're in better mental shape than I, perhaps. Uh, but the but the great thing about these is that they're snappy and funny, and um, and uh, you know they, they go super fast. <laughs> so in between heavy reading, you know, in between reading the uh, like last year, I set myself a task and did it of going through the entire Robert Carroll LBJ biography, all four volumes, three thousand pages, you know, and that was like a few months of of deep concentration sure. on LBJ. This is at the other end of the reading spectrum. <laughs> it's delightful. Amazing. Thank you so much. Anytime. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.